Normally, I don't uh, do this kind of thing on a Thursday night, but I'm going to do it tonight because, you know, as we're going through and and looking at the uh, Solomon's Temple, you know, sometimes talking about something is fine and good, but sometimes it's nice just to see something, (laughs) Um, because there's a lot of technical details there, and just to kind of get it in your mind's eye as you read, it's sometimes helpful to do that. So we'll be doing that uh, tonight, and so we're going to look at uh, Solomon's temple, and specifically looking at uh, 1 Kings chapter 7. Last week we looked at 1 Kings chapter 6, and we kind of... uh, Solomon just began to build the temple, and notice what it says there. And again, if you haven't uh, starred this verse or, or looked at it, uh, underline it, circle it, do whatever you got to do, because this is one of those verses that helps you um, put the Bible into its jigsaw puzzle as far as time is concerned. This is one of those special moments in the Bible that, uh, that when... We look at everything uh, around these events. We can put them into places, and then we can find out whether something happened in a certain amount of time and what time it did happen, because we know... Well, let's just look at it. It says, It came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, notice, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign. We know that Solomon uh, uh, came into his, uh, his kingdom... In 971 B.C., he was born in 1000 B.C., so he was about 29 years old, we believe, when he became king. And uh, so if we look at the fourth year of his reign, 971 minus 4, we get to 967. And so we back up 480 years before that, and we come to 445. Is that right? I think so. Uh, 446, 447, somewhere in that area, um, you come up to that 480 years earlier and, and you come to the very time that the Israelites left Egypt and began their journey into the promised land. And so from that point up until now, it's been 480 years, uh, this fourth year of his reign, 480 years. And so that, again, one of those really great moments in the Bible because other history, secular history, you know, they know when certain things happen, and, and, and we know when this happened, and it's easy to ascribe dates and then build the timeline from there. So anyway, we looked at that chapter, and Solomon, again, had been given the blueprint, if you will, from his father David. Remember, God had um, put upon David's heart, or David had it in his heart, to build God a temple. A permanent structure, now that the children of Israel had finally come into the land, David had taken over Jerusalem, now they were going to have a permanent structure instead of a a tabernacle that was temporary, able to be picked up and moved. That was all fine and good in their 40 years of wandering in the desert, but now they are well established in the land, and so a permanent structure wanted to be built, or David wanted to build it. But remember, God said to David, David, you can't build me a house. You can't build me a house because you're a, you're a warrior and you've got blood all over your hands. But your son, he's going to build me a temple. One who's going to yet be born of you, he will be the one who will build me the temple. 
And, and God was going to, again, uh, give to David wonderful, precious promises about his lineage going all the way to the time of Christ, because Christ is from the line of Judah. And remember, we looked at the promise, the Davidic covenant that God had made with David back in Second Samuel chapter 7, uh, I believe it's in verses 10 through 15 specifically, and God basically said, your son is going to build me a temple, and by the way, there will not fail a man to sit on the throne of Judah as long as you obey me. Now there is the conditional promise. If your son and your son's sons and the line of the kings of Judah, if they continue to obey me and to walk in my statutes and my commandments, then they will continue to be on the throne. But when they start to stray, then there's going to be trouble. And we know through history there was trouble. And ultimately, the northern ten tribes were carried away captive in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. And then it wasn't long after that, just 100 and some 150, 80 years later, uh, the southern two tribes get taken into captivity uh, in Babylon and beginning in 606 B.C. And finally, 20 years later, the temple um, was destroyed. Solomon's temple, the one that we're looking at tonight, the very beginning of this temple would ultimately be destroyed in 586 by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And so they're going to enjoy this temple for about 380 some years before it's finally going to be destroyed. Why? Because of their rebellion, because of their sin. And, and God is always very clear when he speaks. Uh, in fact, the Bible often repeats itself and we looked at this last week about God not only speaking to David this promise, this conditional promise, but he also told Solomon on more than one occasion, Solomon, if you follow me and you walk in my, in my ways, you're, you're going to do great. And the nation is going to be wonderful. And there, you're going to have peace on your borders. And God in his grace allowed Solomon's reign, that 40 years, to really be the golden age for Israel. They've never experienced a time like that, and neither will they until, I believe, the millennial reign of Christ, because uh, there's never been a time like, like what we're looking at in his reign. There's never been a time like that for Israel ever until yet future to us, the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Christ where things will be restored and Jesus himself will sit on a rebuilt temple that he will build and the, the blueprint of that is in Ezekiel, by the way. It's in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 47. You can read it yourself. It's a much bigger temple than, than this temple we're looking at was Solomon's temple. It's going to be much bigger than even Herod's temple that he rebuilt for the Jews uh, you know, beginning in what, uh, 26 or 46 BC, and it took them quite a while to do that. It's even going to be bigger than that. It's going to dwarf even Herod's temple, Jesus' temple that he's going to build in Israel during the millennial reign of Christ. And so when we looked at chapter 6, we looked at the basic foundation of the temple, the measurements of the of the outer sanctuary, the, what we call the holy place. And then we looked at the measurements of the holy of holies, the, called the inner sanctuary. We looked at the portico that was out in front. We looked at some of the interior uh, furnishings of that temple. And, and, and what's interesting, uh, you know what, Let's uh, before I get ahead of myself here, Chapter 6 is giving us all of this information about the temple specifically. And then right in chapter 7, we have this little pause. It's almost like the brakes are being put on. And then 
the Lord sees fit to give us some of the other temple or other buildings, I'm sorry, that, that Solomon built during the beginning of his reign. And we really don't pick up with the temple itself and the furnishings of the temple until we get to verse 15 of chapter 7. So we got 14 verses in chapter 7 that are just sort of like an intermission. <laughs> But the story goes on. And so let's look at the first 14 verses. Let's just read them and then we'll go back and take a look at this. So notice in verse 1 of chapter 7 it says, But Solomon took 13 years to build his own house, and so he finished all his house. He also built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was one cubit, excuse me, 100 cubits. Its width 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits with four rows of cedar pillars and cedar beams on the pillars. And it was paneled with cedar above the beams that were on 40 pillars, 45 pillars, excuse me, 15 to a row. And there were windows with beveled frames in three rows and window was opposite window in three tiers. And all the doors and doorposts had rectangular frames and windows uh, a window was opposite window in three tiers. He also made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits and its width 30 cubits. And in front of them was a portico with pillars and a canopy was in front of them. Then he made a hall for the throne of the hall of judgment where he might judge. And it was paneled with cedar from floor to ceiling. And then in verse 8, And the house where he dwelt had another court inside the hall of light workmanship, and Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken as wife. And all these were of costly stones cut to size, trimmed with saws, inside and out from the foundation to the eaves, and also on the outside to the great court. And the foundation was of costly stones, large stones, some ten cubits and some eight cubits. And above were costly stones hewn to size and cedar wood. And the great court was enclosed with three rows of hewn stones and a row of cedar beams. And so were the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the temple. Now King Solomon sent and brought Hiram, or Hurem, from Tyre. He was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali. And his father was a man of Tyre, a bronze worker. He was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill in working with all kinds of bronze work. And so he came to, came to King Solomon and did all his work. He did all of his work. And so we see now, as we're going back to verse 1 here, that there are uh, things that are covered in the, in, the, in the balance of this chapter after verse 14. Excuse me. We're going to see the bronze pillars for the temple. We're going to see the sea, the, 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 the brazen sea, and the, and the oxen that would be supporting that. And we're going to see carts and lavers where the, the priests would wash themselves as they would sacrifice offerings on the altar. And we're going to see other furnishings of the temple when we get to verse 40. And you might want to make a note in your Bible uh, at the beginning of this chapter to just reference Second Chronicles chapters 3 and 4, because those are really the parallel chapters, if you will, of, this, of really chapters 6 and 7. And so you're going to see pretty much the same information there, and sometimes in Chronicles you'll see something a little bit different, a little bit more information sometimes, and uh, it gives some some clarity on some things. 
And so let's look at verse 1 there. Notice it says, But Solomon took 13 years to build his own house, and so he finished his house. And so between verse 1 and verse 14, we're going to see the other buildings that Solomon built. And we see here that he, he built his own royal palace. We're going to see that he's going to be building the house of the forest of Lebanon. Now, this can be a little tricky because normally you would think that it was in Lebanon, right? But all of these things, these buildings that we're talking about here, were all very close together. In fact, they were, there were colonnades and courtyards that kind of piece all of these things together. And so all of this was in Jerusalem. Okay, it wasn't in Lebanon, but he used uh, certainly the cypress and the, the cedar and those woods that they found that were very plentiful and very uh, populous up in the area of Tyre and Sidon. And, and remember, Hiram, the king of Tyre, was so happy to give that to Solomon. And in, um, and in response to that, uh, Solomon would also give them uh, foods and, and, and different kinds of flour and olive oil, and um, we, we already looked at that. So, so he's going to have these different places, these other buildings uh, built. And so the house of the forest of Lebanon, the hall of pillars, the judgment hall or the throne, his own royal residence, of course, and then the queen's residence, who was his first wife that we know of, and that was uh, the king of Egypt's daughter, or Pharaoh's daughter. And here we can already see something in Solomon. And again, I, I think these things are like, when, when you read them, you, you, you kind of scratch your head a little bit. Because God told uh, Solomon, he, he told, and Solomon certainly knew this, because David, I'm sure, made him aware of it, that the Israelites, every Israelite male knew that they weren't to marry outside of Israel. They weren't to marry the, the, the Gentile nations. Any, they were not to intermix like that. God wanted them to be separate. It wasn't some kind of racist thing. See, today, God would be canceled. God would be canceled. He would be kicked off Twitter and Facebook, and um, YouTube would, would forget about him, and, and, and the government would come after him. Well, they did, actually, back then, and they crucified him. But anyway... Solomon began to do this thing, and, and this to me is just like a harbinger of things to come. It was just something that, it's a little hint of like, Solomon, why'd you do that? Why couldn't you just marry a nice girl from Judah? I mean, there's plenty of young, cute girls. You didn't have to go outside of Israel, but he did. And we're going to see that that's going to be a problem for him later. And so God is dropping all of these little hints. And as we go through Solomon's life, I'm going to bring them out to you, and we'll look at more of that later as we go, as we go. So notice in verse 2. So we also built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits, with four rows of cedar pillars and cedar beams on the pillars. Now this house of the forest of Lebanon was much longer than the temple. The temple was only 90 feet long. This thing is 150 feet long. It's even wider than the temple. It's 75 feet wide, but it's exactly the same height as the temple. But all the length and the width were completely um, bigger than the temple. And we can see that, you know, the dimensions of Solomon's temple were 90, uh, 90 feet when it's 60 cubits, that's 90, um, 90 feet. 20 cubits is 30 feet. Uh, the height was 30 cubits or 45 feet. Basically, you just take the cubit, you multiply by 18 and divide it by 12, and that gives you the amount, the, the, the feet that we're talking about. That's how we convert it into our 
uh, standard now. But notice in verse 3, and it was paneled, notice, with cedar above the beams that were on the 45 pillars, 15 to a row. And there were windows with beveled frames in three rows, and window was opposite window in three tiers. And again, this is not the temple. This is talking about this forest of Lebanon, this, this building. So it, as, you, as we read this, you're going to find some similarities in the way the temple was built. It was a very common architecture at that time. And the Phoenicians and the Syrians, they kind of built these structures. And they were kind of, there was some similarity to them. Sort of like when you, when you go down a, a, a subdivision down in Penfield and you go down the street and it's a new subdivision, all the houses look pretty much the same. You know, variations, but they're made by the same maker. It looks very similar. You can kind of tell that there's like probably three or four, maybe five models, and they just kind of mix and match and put the thing together. But back at that time, they had, you know, things that they kind of adhered to, and they liked, and they kept them. But notice all the doorways and doorposts had rectangular frames, and window was opposite window in three tiers. Verse 6, he also made the hall of pillars, and its length was 50 cubits, and its width 30 cubits, and in front of them was a portico with pillars, and a canopy was in front of them. And so again, you, you get the picture that there's a lot of colonnades, there's a lot of walkways uh, in between these different buildings, and so it's kind of like a complex, if you will, all these different buildings that he's building. And where we believe these things were built was on the western side of what you and I would call the Temple Mount. On the western side of the Temple Mount today is where all of this was happening. And so uh, the hall of pillars was 75 feet long and 45 feet wide. So verse 7, then he made a hall for the throne or the hall of judgment where he might judge. And it was paneled with cedar from floor to ceiling. And the house where he dwelt had another court inside the hall of like workmanship. And Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken a wife. Again, Solomon, what are you doing? What are you doing taking a wife of Egypt? I'll leave you with that. <laughs> you, can, you can just let that hang out in the back of your mind for a little while. And all these, verse 9, were of costly stones cut to size, trimmed with saws inside and out, from the foundation to the eaves and also to the Outside to the great court, and the foundation was of costly stones, large stones, some 10 cubits or 15 feet, and some 8 cubits, 12 feet. And above were costly stones, hewn to size, and cedar wood. And the great court was enclosed with three rows of hewn stones and a row of cedar beams. So were the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the temple. So really, it's just a way of saying a lot of these motifs, if you will, in the construction were similar to what, how the temple was constructed. And, and, and naturally, Solomon wouldn't want to... Uh, gravitate too far away from the architecture of the house of God, right? Because um, it would look kind of weird to have, you know, building a structure and then have your house be something completely different. That's like having a, a colonial house next to somebody with an octagon, you know, house, you know, those things that you see in Penfield every now and then, or an A-frame, you know, it just doesn't work, it doesn't fit. So, now notice verse 13. So, Hiram the craftsman, now King Solomon sent and brought Hiram, or Huram, from Tyre. This man, you'll notice in other portions of the Bible, in Chronicles and other places, 
Um, sometimes his name is spelled H-U-R-M-A-N. Sometimes it's spelled H-I-R. Now, you don't want to get this Hiram or Hurem. You don't want to confuse him with the king of Tyre, right? Because the king of Tyre, he was Hiram, king of Tyre. This man is not him. Totally separate individual. But he was a very skilled man. Notice what it says in verse 14. He was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali. So we know that his uh, father was, uh, uh, was, a, was Jewish and his uh, mother was too. But notice, he was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali. So his father must have died when he was younger. And his father, or really his stepfather, was a man of Tyre, uh, a bronze worker. And he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill in working with all kinds of bronze work. So he came to Solomon, King Solomon, and did all of his work for him. Now, you might want to write this reference down next to this verse and because you can look at it and you can understand where we're going with this. It's uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 2, beginning in verse 13 and verse 14. Uh, so 2 Chronicles 2, verse 13 and 14. And let me read it to you because between that verse that we just read and this verse, we're going to learn a little bit more about this, this gentleman it says in 2 Chronicles 2, verse 13, he says, And now I have sent a skillful man endowed with understanding, Hurem, my master craftsman. And here, Hiram, the king, is speaking to Solomon. Look, I'm sending you this master craftsman. He's great in bronze. His, his stepfather is great in it. He is even better. And now he, I'm sending him to you. His name is Hurem, my master craftsman, the son of a woman of the daughters of Dan. Well, there's kind of a problem there because we just read in 1 Kings 7 that she was from the daughters of a daughter of Naphtali, right? But no worries. Notice, and his father was a man of Tyre, skilled to do work in gold and silver, bronze and iron, stone and wood, purple and blue, fine linen and crimson, and to make many um, and to make any engraving and to accomplish any plan which may be given to him with your skillful men and with the skillful men of my Lord David, your father. And so Hiram sends this man who's a very gifted young man who can do all these things. And you know, that's really wonderful because remember, there was two gentlemen, Bezalel and Aholiab. These were two men who God had given great skill when Moses was building the tabernacle. And so these were men way back in time that really had a same spirit about them. They had the same skill level. When you compare those two passages, you may wonder, well, it says that one says that she's from Naphtali, another one says she's from the daughter of Dan. You know, um, a way to reconcile the seeming discrepancy is that perhaps she was born in Dan and perhaps her residence was in Naphtali or vice versa. Because obviously after her first husband died, she probably married and moved somewhere else or moved somewhere else and then got married. And so the Bible doesn't really tell us and it doesn't really need to. It's just an interesting little tidbit. So that this Huram, Huram was Jewish and his mother and deceased father were Jewish, but his stepfather was from Tyre, was a bronze worker and a very skilled one. So as we get to verse 15 down through verse 51 at the end of the chapter, we're going to see... Um, these things that Solomon had built. We're going to see the bronze pillars uh, for the temple, the bronze sea and the oxen, the cart and the lavers, and all of these things had a function. We're not going to go into a great deal uh, of detail about those tonight. 
And then in verse uh, 40, we're going to see the other furnishings of the temple, which would include the shovels and the bowls and the pots, the altar of gold, the, the altar of incense, the table of showbread, the lampstands, the basins, the wick trimmers, the ladles, the censers, the hinges for the doors. And, um, and, and what we can see here is a, a, a layout of what Solomon's temple would look like. And as you can see over on the right side, as you would come in from the west, you would see the two pillars, uh, which we will look at shortly. And then you walk up the stairs into this vestibule. And then inside of that, inside those doors, you would come into the area, which is called the, um, uh, the holy place. And inside that holy place, you would see uh, the, the five candlesticks in, in the temple, or excuse me, in the tabernacle, there was only one lampstand on the left-hand side as you walked in, and only one table of showbread, and then the altar of incense, and then the, the material, the, the, the screen, basically, and on the other side was the Ark of the Covenant. Well, Solomon's temple is nearly double the size of the tabernacle, but instead of just having one lampstand, now we've got five on each side, five lampstands on each side, and then you've got the table of showbread, and then you've got the altar of incense, and then another door, and then on the other side of that door, uh, which only the high priest could go in once a year, would be the Holy of Holies. It's literally a cube, a 30-foot cube, and inside that would be two large cherubim and then the Ark of the Covenant. The two cherubim would be there and their wings would be touching and they'd be standing. I think they were 15 feet tall. And then right in the center of those two cherubim would be the Ark of the Covenant. And remember, the mercy seat on top of that Ark of the Covenant would be the two angels with their wings folding inward, looking down at the mercy seat. And remember what was inside of the Ark of the Covenant. At this time, there was only one thing, and it was the tablets of stone, the two tablets that Moses went up on the mountain and got, and basically it had the Ten Commandments on them. And so that is all that is in the ark. Those are the only two pieces at that time that were in the ark. And they weren't allowed to open that thing up and look around. They weren't, you know, weren't allowed to come in and have like a show-and-tell kind of thing. In fact, only the high priest was able to go in, and he didn't even do that. He just offered blood on that mercy seat once a year on the Day of Atonement. And so we see Solomon's temple as a big upgrade to what we saw in the tabernacle. And there are other models of the temple that I think are really good. You can see, uh, if you were to look at this model, you can see the temple right in front of you. And as you're looking, you're looking east, looking straight at the front entrance of it. And then on the left side, you will see the... Uh, brazen sea, and then you'll see the altar where they would make the sacrifices on the right-hand side, and then you would have these lavers, five on each side, and they would be lined up on either side of the temple, and, and then those colonnades and all of those other buildings that Solomon had built are all around, and they're connecting different things, so it's a really large, a very large complex now. And so we get into verse 15, and, and this is interesting. It says, and he cast two pillars of bronze, two pillars of bronze, and each one was 18 cubits high, and a line of 12 cubits measured the circumference of each. And so when we do the math on this, it gives you the, an understanding of the enormity 
of these things. And it would be fun to actually have like a, a mock-up of one of these pillars. In fact, I, I've often thought about it'd be kind of cool to put um, Boaz in, in Hebrew on that one and Jaquin on that one because that's what the two pillars here in the temple were. But notice, if we look at verse 15... There are a couple of other verses that corroborate this idea of them being 18 cubits tall or 27 feet tall. In 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 7, and Jeremiah 52, verse 21. So 2 Kings 25, verse 17, and Jeremiah 52, verse 21. Let me read them to you. And, and, and there's a reason for this, because uh, you'll notice, remember when we talked about there are certain numbers in the Bible that somehow in the translation, in the copying of the Old Testament scriptures that the scribes did, occasionally you're going to come across some uh, differences. And, and this one is a fairly easy one to corroborate or to look at, because you're going to find it, and it may kind of scratch your head, so let's just talk about it. Um, so in 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 17, it says, The height of one pillar was 18 cubits, and the capital on it was of bronze. And so we know that, because we just read it in uh, 1 Kings chapter 7. So 2 Kings 25 corroborates that, that it was 18 cubits. No problem. And then, and then in Jeremiah, we look at that. And it says, Now concerning the pillars, and this was right before Nebuchadnezzar came, as he, as he came and he was carrying the plunder from the temple in 586, Jeremiah is kind of cataloging the things that he took. And one of them was, he says, Now concerning the pillars, the height of one pillar was 18 cubits. Okay, we, we heard that in 2 Kings. We saw that in 1 Kings. And uh, so that's 27 feet tall. But then we go to 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 3, verse 15, and we read this. And it says, Also he made in front of the temple two pillars, 35 cubits high. Wait a minute. 35 cubits high, that would make it 52 and a half feet tall. So which is it? Is it 27 feet tall or is it 52 and a half feet tall? 35 cubits, which is it, right? And so immediately you're thinking to yourself, uh-oh, there's trouble in paradise. But then when you go into, if you look at uh, the NIV version, it gives us the reason, and it's very easy in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 15, in the NIV, notice what it says. For the front of the temple he made two pillars, which together were 35 cubits long. And again, they're estimating. It's not a strict number because otherwise it would be 36 cubits, right? And I don't, make, I don't mean to make a big deal of this, but when you come across something like that, it may, it may kind of bug you. But the NIV has it right in the sense that it was... They were 35 cubits together. It really should be, what, uh, 36, right? But what's a cubit? You know, what's, what's, what's a... So notice together they were 35. And so this apparently is an estimate. So 35 cubits, 52 and a half feet tall. Each pillar was 18 cubits or 27 feet. That would be 36 cubits or 54 feet. So we got about a one and a half inch or one, one uh, a foot and a half difference, right? So it's just an estimate. So we don't need to really worry about that. But there's two things to consider about this little discrepancy. Number one, 
the Hebrew figures for writing 18 and 35, and, and, and I bring this up because at some point in your study of the Word of God, you're going to come across things, and a lot, much of these things are very easy to wade through, and, and um, you, you can be helped through them, and people have written books about these things, and it's good to know because your faith, you, you may be of, of the heart, and, and there's nothing wrong with this, where you're sensitive, and you're like, if the Word of God is true, then why isn't this adding up? All right, and again, you've heard me say, don't worry about numbers too much because they don't—they're not really doctrine. Okay, worry more about doctrine than numbers that can be garbled. But here's the thing: the Hebrew, from what I understand, I don't know Hebrew. I can't write a Hebrew letter myself. But the Hebrew figures for 18 and 35 are evidently very similar, and so it would be easy for a scribe when he's when he's writing from the original manuscripts to make a slip, and one little slip, one little slip, and, and they can be so close, and it changes the number. Instead of 20, it could be 200. Instead of 2,000, it could be 20, or two. So all these things are really important. So the bottom line is, it's 18 cubits high, <laughs> which is 27 feet. So we'll move on from there. Aren't you glad? Everybody nod. Okay, we're good? Okay. <laughs> so back in verse 16, back in our text, it says, Then he made two capitals of cast bronze to set on top of the pillars, and the height of one capital was five cubits, or seven and a half feet, and the height of the other capital was five cubits as well. And so, verse 17, he made a lattice network with wreaths of chain work for the capitals which were on top of the pillars, seven chains for one capital and seven for the other capital. So he made the pillars and two rows of pomegranates above the network all around to cover the capitals that were on top, and thus he did for the other capitals. And the capitals which were on top of the pillars in the hall were in the shape of lilies, four cubits, so six feet tall, these, these, these things. And so when you start looking at the, the complexity and all the details of the temple, it is a beautiful structure. And it, you know, the pillars are made out of, out of bronze. And the Bible tells us, and we'll get to this, that it was four fingers thick, all around this huge thing that was a very large column, it was a handbreadth thick. So it was hollow in the center, but it was made of solid bronze, burnished bronze, which means it was polished and, and made smooth. And can you imagine the sun coming up in the east and hitting that in the morning? And then the gold and then the limestone. And as the sun is coming up, it's hitting that and it's just it's blinding because of all of the gold and the, and the precious stones and the, and the limestone, the whiteness of the limestone. It's just going to blow your mind. And then, God forbid, the doors are open, and then the sun comes in and just lights that thing up because all it's inside of Solomon's temple, the floors, the ceilings, the sides, the lampstands, all the furniture in there is covered with gold. It's gold. And even the door going from the holy place to the holy of holies is made of gold. <laughs> and then behind that, which you can't see, are another 15 feet cherubims made of gold. And then the ark itself, the ark of the covenant made of gold. And so when the lampstands are all on and the lights are all on, and even if the sun is coming in, the place is lighting up. Can you imagine just the awe and the reverence that it would command? You'd walk in there and probably we'd all fall on our face. In reverence. And, and isn't that 
the way it ought to be when we think of God? Isn't he worth having something that glory? He didn't ask for it, by the way, but isn't he worth it? The very most, the most precious thing that we can imagine in our culture, in the world, is solid gold. That's, I don't know that it gets any better than that. And you're walking on it. And you're, you're looking at the sides and the ceilings and everything, and all of that is like cedar and, and, and cypress, all overlaid with gold and limestone. You know, it's just like, oh my goodness. And the, the precious stones and the gems, and it's just like, oh my. It makes you think about God. <laughs> it makes you think of something, someone very, very special. And of course, it, it, it ought to. It ought to. And the beauty of the temple We'll come back to that. But the capitals, verse 20, on the two pillars also had pomegranates above by the convex surface, which was next to the network. And there were 200 such pomegranates and rows on each of the capitals all around. And then he set up pillars by the vestibule of the temple. And he set up the pillar on the right and called its name Yakin. And he set up the pillar on the left, and he called its name Boaz. And obviously these names have a significance. Boaz means in it is strength, meaning speaking of God in him, in it is strength. And Jaquin, he shall establish, meaning God, Yahweh, shall establish. And he knows all things. He's going to establish everything. There's nothing that he can't establish. When he says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. He establishes it, it's, going to, it's good as done. Especially when he makes unconditional promises. And he gave to Moses, he gave to Abraham, he gave to David unconditional promises. And conditional ones too. But when he establishes it, when God says, when he writes in his word that things that are coming yet in the future are going to happen, and guess what? We're starting to see those things right now. Shouldn't it encourage our faith? I mean, think about it. What John wrote in the end, the very end of the first century, 95, 96 AD, now we are seeing those things that God had given to him to write down. These things are coming front and center to us. And if you don't see that, you're not paying attention. Right? God has told us these things. And we've looked at them when we went through Revelation and even uh, at different times. But So he establishes his word, and he establishes those things that are important to him. And notice in verse 22 now, the tops of the pillars were in the shape of lilies. And again, what a beautiful thing to see. You can see at the top of those, chap- uh, those capitals that there's lily. It looks like lilies flailing out like that. And they were shaped like lilies, so the work of the pillars was finished. And then he goes on to another piece of the furniture there in the courtyard, and it's the sea uh, and the oxen. And notice, he made the sea of cast bronze and ten cubits from one brim to the other, a very large pool. It's a big pool is really what it is. And it was completely round. Its height was five cubits, and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. So the diameter of the sea of cast bronze was 15 feet. So take a measuring stick and measure it 15 feet, and that's the diameter of how big this thing was. And made of solid brass... I think that's pretty heavy, wouldn't you think? 
And it was seven feet tall, seven and a half feet tall. The circumference of the whole thing was 45 feet in circumference. So below its brim were ornamental buds encircling it all around, 10 to a cubit, all the way around the sea. The ornamental buds were cast in two rows where it was cast. And so you have these oxen, and notice it stood on 12 oxen, three looking toward the north, three looking toward the west, three looking toward the south, and three looking toward the east. The sea was set upon them, and all their back parts pointed inward. And it could be, and I I believe this, that these oxen were really uh, symbolic of Israel, because we know that there's 12 tribes of Israel. There's 12 oxen, and there's three on each side of north, south, east, and west. And even when you look at Numbers chapter 2, you might want to write that in the margin of your Bible, because even while they were traveling in the wilderness, remember, as they were coming out of Egypt, going to the promised land, when they would camp, that's exactly how they would camp. They would have the tabernacle with the ark right in the center, and then all these tribes would camp on either side, on the north, south, east, and west, three tribes of each, and they would do that. And so even in these, you know, these little design details, there's no, coincidence, or, you know, there's no uh, happenstance about them. There's a reason for them. And notice in verse 26, it was a handbreadth thick. So you take your hand, and that's how thick this thing was. And it was very heavy, especially when you fill it with about 10, 11 or 12,000 gallons of water. So it was a handbreadth thick, and its brim was shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It contained 2,000 baths, and a bath is approximately six gallons. So you do the math, it's about eleven or 12,000 gallons of water. And then he goes on to the carts and the lavers. And so he made ten carts of bronze. Four cubits was the length of each cart, and four cubits its width, and three cubits its height. So the bronze... Uh, carts were six feet in length, four and a half feet in width and in height on spokes or on uh, chariot wheels. And this was the design of the carts. They had panels, and the panels were between frames. And on the panels that were between the frames were lions and oxen and cherubim, as you can see pictured. And on the frames was a pedestal on top. Below the lions and oxen were wreaths of plated work. And every cart had four bronze wheels and axles of bronze and its four feet and had supports. Under each laver were supports of cast bronze beside each wreath. Verse 31, its opening inside the crown at the top was one cubit in diameter. And the opening was round, shaped like a pedestal. One and a half cubits in outside diameter and also on the opening were engravings. But the panels were square, not round. And under the panels were the four wheels, and the axles of the wheels were joined to the cart. The height of a wheel was one and a half cubits, which is basically two and a half feet. And the workmanship of the wheels was like the workmanship of a chariot wheel, like uh, their axle pins, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all of cast bronze. So think of the amount of money that took. I mean, if you were to build anything like this today, it would be outrageous. And someone would come along and say, you know, that's just a big waste. You should give, sell all that stuff and give it to the poor. <laughs> but I say, you don't understand what worship is. We don't understand. We don't understand a woman who would take a year's worth of resources, a, a year's wage of spikenard, and then to break that and to pour it on Jesus 
and to anoint his head and his feet. Judas had a problem with that. He's like, are you kidding me? We could have sold this and fed the poor. And Jesus said, the poor you're going to have all with you always, but me, not always. And isn't he worthy to have extravagant worship poured out upon him? I mean, really, is there anybody who has a, I don't have a problem with that. In fact, I think sometimes our greatest worship is the thing that's, and and God doesn't require it of you, okay, but there may come a time where God will put his finger on something that means more to you than anything, and he'll say, can you? I'm not asking you if you will, but will you? Would you be willing to give that to me? Would you be willing to give that to somebody else that I want you to give it to? Or would you be willing to part with this thing that's most valuable to you. And the person who's not a worshiper will say, forget it. I'm walking away. And many do. But some people are so touched by Jesus that they're willing to say, you know what, God? After what you've done in my heart, after you save my soul, is there anything that I can or should withhold from you? Lord, I will give you much more than that if you ask. I'll give it all to you. And see, that's the heart of a worshiper, extravagant worship. And that's what you see in Mary of Bethany when she poured that ointment on Jesus. Don't ever any, let anybody get in the way between you and worship. And if it's extravagant and expensive, all the better. Don't let somebody come and reason you out of doing something for someone because the Lord has told you to do it. And he may. He may not. But the thing is, is am I willing that's the battle. That's the battle right there is in my will. Once God can touch my will, then for him to speak to me in a dream or to speak to me in the still small voice, and you'll know it when God speaks to you. And when he does, if the battle has already been won in your heart, it's very easy to follow through. And you'll know it when it happens. And you're so willing. He causes us first to will and then to do of his good pleasure. Isn't that the way it always is? He works on our heart first. He doesn't take anything from you. He doesn't even want, he doesn't need anything. But sometimes I need to be challenged in my worship of God. Because I, I say it all the time, Lord, I love you. And the Lord's like, I know you love me, Rob. Like we read in, in John 21, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I, I, I like you in kind of a friendly way. But do you agape me, Peter? You know I, I, I phileo you, Lord. I, I, I have a fond interest in you. Well, Peter, do you even phileo me? Yes, I do phileo you, Lord. I I do love you in a loving, friendly kind of way. And Jesus never cast him away. He took what he had. And Peter's growth, he would grow in that worship of God. He would grow to the point where he would be willing to go to the cross. And that's exactly what happened. They hung him upside down, we believe, and he was willing to be crucified because his heart had become so, it was this small, but then as he, as he grew in Christ, his heart became so large that it was an easy thing for him to be crucified. I'm not saying it was easy, but it was easy for him to give up the, the, the greatest thing. And that's your life. Anybody can hand over a $50 bill. Anybody can write a, th- a check for $10,000 or $50,000 or $44 billion to buy Twitter. Anybody can do that. Well, not everybody with 44 billion. Only a few people can do that. But you know, the ultimate sacrifice, Peter took that. And God doesn't require that of every one of us. But you know, this is worship. All of these things, 
the gold, an untold number of how much this was, the silver, the bronze, the brass, everything was just incredible. So notice the, um, uh, let's see. The workmanship of the wheels was like the workmanship of a chariot wheel. We, we looked at that, verse 34. And there were four supports at the four corners of each cart. Its supports were part of the cart itself. And on top of the cart and the height of half, uh, at the height of half a cubit, it was perfectly round. And on the top of the cart, its flanges and its panels were of the same casting. Verse 36, on the plates of its flanges were on its panels. He engraved, notice, cherubims, lions, and palm trees. No doubt lions because of the lion of the tribe of Judah. No doubt the cherubim, speaking of his heavenly origin, and the palm trees, I think of Eden, I think of nature, I think of God, creator of all things. And wherever there was a, a clear space on each, they would do that with wreaths all around. Very beautiful, ornate work. Thus he made the ten carts, and all of them were of the same mold, one measure and one shape. And then he made ten lavers of bronze. Each laver contained 40 baths, or approximately 240 gallons. So there were ten of those brass things holding 240 gallons of water. They were placed on the carts. And each laver was four cubits, and on each of the ten carts, what was a uh, on each of the ten carts was a laver. And he put the five carts on the right side of the house, and five on the left side of the house. And he set the sea on the right side of the house. I guess depending on where you're at, um, and toward the southeast, so we can see that uh, because north is. Um, North is that direction, south is this direction, so that laver was placed right there in those carts, somewhere on the north, somewhere on the south side of it. And then finally, in verse 40, we get into the other furnishings of the temple, the, the shovels and the bowls, the pots, the altar of gold, the table of showbread, the lampstands, the basins, the gold wick trimmers, the ladles, censers, and the hinges for the doors. Notice in verse 40, Hurim, this gentleman, made the lavers and the shovels and the bowls. And so Hurim doing, uh, finished doing all the work that he was to do for King Solomon for the house of the Lord. The two pillars, the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the two pillars, the two networks covering the bowl-shaped capitals which were on top of the pillars, 400 pomegranates for the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the two, the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the pillars. And those for, in verse 43, the ten carts, the ten lavers on the carts, one C, which is that very large one right there on the, on the left side, uh, on the southeast side of the, of the thing that held 11 or 12,000 gallons of water. That's a, that's a swimming pool. Basically, although they didn't swim in it, trust me. Um, one sea and twelve oxen under the sea. And notice verse 45, the pots, the shovels, the bowls. All these articles which Hiram made for King Solomon for the house of the Lord were of burnished bronze. Burnished bronze, that is a polished bronze. Uh, and it me literally means to make bald or to make bright. And you only do that by polishing it, and it comes out, a, it's just decadent when brass like that is polished. And it, again, just reflecting the glory of God. 
the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And then verse 46, And in the plain of Jordan the king had them cast in clay molds between Sakoth and Zeratan. Now these two uh, places are, if you were to look at a map of Israel, right in the center of Israel is the Jordan Valley. And then you have the Sea of Galilee in the north, and then you have the Dead Sea in the south. And somewhere in the middle of that Jordan Valley are these two towns. And so all of these things were cast in clay molds, and they would pour the molten brass into these molds and make these articles again, and they would polish them and get them ready, and they would, they would then bring them to Jerusalem so that there would be no sound, no sound of a saw, no sound of a hammer. Everything was just quietly put together. And we looked at why that was perhaps last week. We talked about just the quietness of it and just the the quiet way that the Holy Spirit works in our lives and in our hearts. And so verse 47, And Solomon did not weigh all the articles because there were so many, and the weight of the bronze was not determined. Thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord, the altar of gold and the table of gold on which was the showbread. And the altar of gold that he's talking about here is the altar of incense. That's that one article that is right before the the doors, before the Holy of Holies, where there was only... In Solomon's temple, there were only three articles that were in there. The two 15-foot gold cherubim with their wings touching in the middle and spanning out to the edge of the, of the, of the sides of the, of the temple. And then right between those two cherubim was the Ark of the Covenant with the poles in them. Remember, those acacia wood poles that were lined with gold. And so verse 49, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the right side, five on the left side, in front of the inner sanctuary. The inner sanctuary is what? The Holy of Holies, right? So when it talks about the inner or the outer sanctuary, the outer sanctuary is what we call the holy place. That's the 60-foot portion. The nave really is what you think of it. If you're in a cathedral, it would be the main part where people would come in. That's the nave, if you will. And then the 30 by 30 cube is the inner sanctuary or the holy of holies. And so the lamp stands of pure gold, five on the right, five on the left, in front of the inner sanctuary with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold, the basins, the trimmers, verse 50, the bowls, the ladles and the censers of pure gold and the hinges of gold, both for the doors of the inner room, the most holy place, and for the doors of the main hall of the temple. And so all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and the furnishings. He put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. And remember when, when David was, uh, because he couldn't build the temple, he amassed everything that Solomon needed for it, for that building. And so he had brass without number, gold and silver and the precious stones, all that stuff. And so now there was so much stuff that was left over that they would put them in those rooms on the sides of the temple. So right in the center, you have the main part, the holy place, when you go in. And then 60 feet away, you've got a a wall. And then on the other side of that is the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant would be and the cherubim. But on the left and the right of that main hallway were... um, 
um, areas, storehouses, that they would actually access from the left side over on, on the south side. They would enter in a door there, and the, the, the rooms were five cubits, I think, on the first floor, six on the second, and then seven on the top one, supporting themselves beautifully the way they, are, they orchestrated that whole thing. But they would take all of these treasures and put them in there. And you think about the treasures that God has laid up for us in glory. He says, I've gone to prepare a place for you. And this is where I want to turn this around really, really quick before we, um, before we end. Is just think about that. You know, think about that. And think about how beautiful the temple was. And the Bible tells us that you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are now the temple of God because God dwells in you. And if that be the case, and after we look at all of the effort and all the money that was spent in, in accumulating the wealth to build this, and you think about how glorious it was and how beautiful it was, it really makes me think about, well, if I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit, then ought not I to take care of myself inside and out? Should I not have the most important thing is inside and, and the Holy Spirit dwells in us, right? And so there ought to be this reciprocation of when he comes into us that I'm willing to let him take charge. I'm willing to let him clean the house. I'm willing to make, let him make what inside of me the most beautiful thing. And the cool thing is, is that he's doing that in each of us little by little. I couldn't handle being sanctified to the extent that Christ ultimately wants me to be. I, I, none of us could handle it. And it takes time. And he does it little by little because then we, we really appreciate it. And then we're like, oh God, I'm just so thankful that I've got this. I'm still on this, this process of sanctification. You're setting me apart from the world. You're making me hate those things that I used to love to do because all they did is destroy my body. And now I understand that. And now you're conforming me to your image and you're giving me a whole other healthier outlook, not only on what's going inside my eyes and my ears. Everything is changing. And ought it, ought it not to do that? He's making us beautiful on the inside. He's making what's in here. That's why I said it's, it's what comes out of a man that defiles a man. But if what's in here is the Holy Spirit, then what should come out of my life should be the things of God. It should be his character, his love, his grace should be coming out of me. And if it's not, I have to ask the question, well, what's going on? Is, is it God's problem or is it my problem? I can tell you right now that it's my problem. I'm the one who puts the stop in the hole when he wants to bless me. I often put my, my finger in that hole and I say, you know what, Lord, I'm just not going to let those blessings come through that hole. I like my sin too much. I'm familiar with it. Darkness is a friend. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Right? <laughs> Sometimes we do. We have greater fellowship with darkness than with light. And then only when we take our finger off that and allow the light of God to shine through, all of a sudden it changes everything. Lord, light this, your searchlight in every area of my heart, in your heart tonight. Turn on the flashlight, million, eight billion candle power light and burn up everything that's of nothing. Burn up the dross and all the weeds and the paper and the, and the, the stuff that doesn't matter. Burn it all up, God. So the only thing that remains is you and what you want for my life. Pretty cool. 
And see, when I think of the temple, that's what I think about. I think of what God wants to make us. And ultimately, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a type of Christ. Notice on the outside, I mean, it's, it's kind of nice. But think of the tabernacle. It, did, it didn't look good on the outside, but on the inside, it was beautiful. You, look, you open the doors of that thing, and you're in a different world. And it's a representation of the beauty and the holiness of Jesus. And he indwells us by his spirit. And so if that be the case, shouldn't I care, take care of my spiritual life? Shouldn't I take care of my physical life? Shouldn't I take care of this temple that he purchased? Yeah. Because that's what he wants to make us. He wants to make us beautiful. And it's not just eyeliner and makeup. No, he could care less about that. I mean, that's all fine and good, but it's what's inside. Let him do that work. And this temple is significant for the people of Israel because, number one, it was a symbol of God's presence with his people. It was their center of worship and sacrifice. It was a reminder of the seriousness of sin and God's mercy as they would do the sacrificial, uh, the, 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 the sacrifices. It prepared the people for the true focus of the temple, which was ultimately going to be the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Whom, when he did finally show up, they crucified him. They didn't want anything to do with him. They kicked him out of the temple. They didn't want him around. And it was also a place of prayer. So think about what God wants to do in you. You know, as we've looked at this, just let... Think about that for a few days and just say, Lord, if, if, if that's so beautiful, and I'm, I'm the, the, Paul tells us that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, if that's the, the case, then, Lord, will you clean up this temple? And will I be willing to point out things in my own life and say, you know what? I know this has got to go. This thing that I do, this thing that I think, this thing that I entertain, whatever it is, am I willing to let it go? And God is patient. He's patient. And little by little, you know what I find in my life, and this is probably true for your life too, is as I go along, as I go along in my walk with Christ, I find that there are things that I hold near and dear to me. And as time goes on, and I become more aware of him and his love for me and his grace, I slowly start to lift my fingers off. You know, the white knuckles on top of the steering wheel? You know, they're white as knuckle, and you're holding on to that thing, whatever it is, and eventually as time goes on, you're just like, you know what? I'm really glad to be not having that on the throne of my heart anymore because, Lord, you're on the throne of my heart. If I'm the temple, then, Lord, have your way in this holy of holies, this place in my heart. And so... Let's pray. I'm not going to have you stand because I'm, I'm going to watch something if you're willing. I think it will really bless you. It only, it's only five minutes. But let's pray and then we'll do that afterwards. Father, we just thank you uh, for this uh, chapter. And um, Lord, we pray that you, we know that you are doing wonderful things in us, Lord. And Lord, help us not to grow impatient, Lord, with the things that you're doing. Lord, I know that, I, that there's so often I want, to be, I, want, I want to be farther along in this process than I really am. And Lord, it's frustrating sometimes, but I can't get there, Lord. I, and, and I know that I'm not alone here. And, and Lord, would you just give us the patience just to wait upon you and trust you for this process? Because Lord, when you finally bring it to us, it's going to be so supernaturally natural it's going to practically just be in our lap and we're not going to even realize it. And then there it is and we're going to be so blessed. And you're just so careful like that, Lord. You're so sweet like that. You're so careful. 
And you're so loving and gentle, God. Do that work in us tonight and all throughout this week, Lord. And bless us as we um, put our hands to the things of tomorrow. Guide and direct our thoughts and our actions, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.